0: All right, welcome back. I'm your producer, Jack Bryan. We've been following John Mattis, a public defender from Miami who's been working with John Kerry's staff to investigate the secret war in Nicaragua and get leniency for his client, Jesus Garcia, by showing Jesus is exposing a real criminal network. Last week, we met Alabama mercenary Jack Terrell, a.k.a. Colonel Flacco who ran the Contra operation invading Nicaragua from Honduras. After becoming disillusioned with his mission and switching factions, he was forced out by Oliver North, the man who seems to be coordinating the war for the White House. Now, as Mattis gets closer to the link between the Contra forces and the U.S. government, he's about to find himself in some danger of his own. So, without any further delay, let me hand it off to my fellow producer and our narrator. John Grier. Thanks, Jack, and welcome back to Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So
1: it's the spring of 1986, and with all the new evidence and witnesses Mattis has collected, the Kerry investigation is heating up. This is Jonathan Weiner, the counsel to Senator Kerry, whom we've been hearing from.
2: This was a big international scandal involving multiple governments with allegations that led to the White House and I was a 30-year-old lawyer who had been in Washington, D.C. for about a year. I think we're a little bit over our heads.
1: And so the Kerry investigation brings on someone with a little more experience, a Washington lawyer with a history of investigating corruption. And you might have noticed that, like, every single person in this thing, myself included, is either named Jack or John. And I'm sorry to say, that's not going to get any better. The new member of the Kerry team was Jack Blum.
3: Jack Blum had investigated a very famous South Korean lobbyist
2: who was charged with bribing members of the U.S. Congress using money from the South Korean government. So he had experience in how you dealt with complicated cross-border criminal activity involving corruption. But Jack had been there before, and so we brought him in.
4: This is Jack Blum. I have now spent a number of years in the field. I will give you just one experience with Washington's notion of secrecy and the world's notion of secrecy. In the middle of the Vietnam War, I was on a KLM plane flying over Vietnam. The pilot said, ladies and gentlemen, look outside the window. We're flying over Laos. See that area? It's been carpet bombed. I came back to Washington and I said to Senator Symington, you know we're bombing in Laos. He said, shh, that's classified. I submit to you, that lots of what you sit here and look at and say, boy, this is classified, it's code word, it's secret, out in the field is being talked about at 40 decibels in a saloon somewhere.
1: Now mercenary Jack Terrell has told Mattis that a rancher with CIA ties named John Hull is running the operation invading Nicaragua from Costa Rica. This is from a 1986 interview with John Hull. Hull is a short, bald man with a real good old boy disposition.
4: Indirectly, I've helped Contras through a humanitarian effort to help their wounded, to get people wounded in here and get them to the hospital. And I've never made any secret of that. They say you were running Contra operations on land that you own or manage. That's not true. Never have. I never will.
2: It was a refueling stop, multiple airstrips, that they dropped weapons off. So it was the perfect staging area for Contra operations. We knew that he had come from Indiana, the same town in Indiana that this mysterious Major Psalm had come from. And if you remember back from the first episode, Major Psalm was the man who
1: left the incriminating papers at Jesus' house. These are the documents that roped Mattis into this investigation.
2: He was the coordinator of it all, of the war on the southern front, at least. Terrell also tells
1: Mattis that there are a couple of mercenaries who worked for John Hull sitting in a prison in Costa
2: Rica and that Mattis should go visit them and hear what they have to say. And I flew to Costa Rica with my investigator, Ralph Maestri, with Ron Rosenblith and a reporter from the Boston Globe. Through the ability of my investigator to convince the prison hierarchy that we were there for some legitimate reason. We were brought in to the prisoner's cell and they were having lunch, sitting on a dirty floor eating burritos with flies. Their priorities were to survive. And we were just sort of add-ons to their day. So both of them had been engaged in military operations in Nicaragua based on John Hull's ranch.
1: This is from a 1986 interview with Peter Glibbery, one of the two mercenaries Mattis is meeting
2: with.
3: We met John Hull on uh, Saturday, 9th March,
2: the, in the restaurant of the Howard Johnson Hotel opposite Miami
3: Airport. Essentially, he wanted to know our military skills, um, how long we were prepared to commit to the war for, and we flew out uh, of Miami
2: Sunday, 10th, And at some point after one of their raids into Nicaragua, things had gone wrong, and the Civil Guard of Costa Rica had actually arrested them. I think the charge was terrorism, i.e. being a mercenary in a neutral country, invading the country next door. And again, they told the same story that Jesus Garcia told us, the same story that shooter Joe Adams told us, and the same story that Colonel Flacco told us, all about this war being run out of Costa Rica on the northern ranch of John Hull. This is from an interview with the other mercenary, Stephen
1: Carr.
3: How many people would come out to you and say, I'm the CIA guy in Costa Rica? John was the man in Costa Rica. He was the organizer. Anybody ever checked the plane? What do you mean check the plane? They unloaded it. Weapons and all. I was very surprised. I thought we were going to land on a dirt strip
2: and be sneaky about it. Not these guys. But what hadn't been really tied up was, yes, John Hull ran this war from his own ranch in northern Costa Rica, but who was helping John Hull And that is when the mercenary said, well, he's plugged in to Washington and he is getting direct funding of $10,000 a month from this preppy guy, blonde haired guy, tall guy that flies in from Washington every month to manage the war and to fund it. Telling us about this uh, friend of his. On the national security council he said uh, my friend sends me ten thousand dollars a month uh, for the support of the fdn in costa rica and that is when ron Rosenbluth whispered to me he's talking about a preppy guy i know who he's talking about and he said well it was his first name rob and peter glibri said yes yes that's who it was rob was courting John Kerry's staff, they already knew him to be the main liaison to the Contras, into the White House. And so that was the first 100 percent bingo. Rob was the one coming from Washington running John Hump.
4: Do you know anybody on the National Security Council? No, I do not. It's the same as, as you say with the CIA. I probably wouldn't know them if they walked in the door.
1: This was John Hall's response when asked about Rob Owen.
4: Oh, I've met Rob on several occasions. Like I say, we're personal friends. Uh, Where have you met? Uh, like I say, I've met him in Washington. I've seen him when he was here. When he came here, he called me when he was in this country. The time frames, I don't remember, but it's no big deal and not, not a lot of time. What were you doing? What was he doing in this country when he called you? I have no idea. I have no idea. What does he do for a living?
1: I have no idea. And while Rob Owen has no real public profile at this time, he will later testify about his involvement with the Contras.
4: Do you know how many Contra leaders you paid uh, in total? How many different leaders
3: you paid? If you can wait a minute, let me count in just in my head. Okay. Uh, somewhere between six and 10.
1: During his testimony, he's asked about the money and messages he delivered to the Contras at Oliver North's direction.
3: It says in the first line, this brief letter is being delivered via a trusted courier who has no knowledge of its contents. And it reads, next week, a sum in excess of 20 million will be deposited in the usual account. Are you aware that 20 million dollars had been deposited into an account on behalf of the countries? No, I was not. Further up on the page, he makes references to how Mr. Calero should deploy his troops. Is that also correct? Yes, it was a suggestion. It reads, we need to make sure that this new financing does not become known. The Congress must believe that there continues to be an urgent need for funding. It was
2: as clumsy as you pick up your cash from a safe in the White House. You drive to Dulles, you fly to Costa Rica, and you pay the Contras to run the war. At the time that you were standing on the
3: street corners making cash payments through uh, open windows of cars, did there come at times when you would talk or joke with Colonel North about whether or not you were all gonna to go to jail for your activities? There were a couple occasions that we would laugh about it and joke, yes.
1: And Owen emphasized that he did not believe that North was some kind of rogue operator.
3: Did it ever cross your mind, Mr. Owen, that perhaps Colonel North was acting out on his own, on a limb? It never did, and he said, uh, well, you know, I would never do anything unless I had orders where or other people knew what I was doing, and I said, yes, I do know that. And I believe that he said on several occasions that he would always be the fall guy if uh, the story ever broke. That gave me cause to think that obviously they had some idea what he was doing to. Sir, so I was in his office on several occasions excuse me, when he made phone calls to what I believe was the CIA.
1: Now, we talk about the CIA a lot in this series, so it's important to mention something that often gets passed over. When someone says the cia is doing something it almost suggests the cia is like some independent organism acting on its own initiative as we mentioned part of that was by design to hide the president's hand in covert operations but in reality the cia is only part of america's foreign policy apparatus and acts at the direction of the president now that doesn't mean that every cia operation was ordered by or even briefed to the president and of course There are rogue operations and a ton of politicking that goes on. But if the CIA is doing something with as many broad foreign policy implications as, like, you know, fomenting a coup or overthrowing a government, they're almost certainly doing it for one reason. And that reason is that the president ordered them to. This is Jack Blum, the experienced lawyer who joined Kerry's team. It's uh, easy for
4: people to either say the CIA did it or the CIA didn't do it. Whatever they did or didn't do, uh, somebody at a political level had a hand in. And it's uh, at the political level that the real kind of judgment has to take
2: place. So being good citizen, I got to Miami, literally dropped my bags at my home, didn't even go to my office, and called the FBI. And I said, I need to meet with you right away. The next thing I knew, I was in the main office of the entire anti-terrorism FBI section. It was like a squad room, you know, half a dozen desks. Uh, so I start to lay out the war being waged illegally from the White House. But it soon degenerated into a room full of meatheads yelling at me, FBI agents telling me, that I don't know what I'm talking about. You don't know what you're talking about. How can you say that? It was nonsensical. If I'm so insignificant, and I don't know what the hell I'm talking about, why the hell are you arguing with me? Push me out the door as a kook. It was like, I don't need to shout at you. You don't need to shout at me. I'm done. And I'm walking out down the hallway, and the agent, the only polite one, He says to me, well, glad we got done here because I have to finish the memo. Washington wants to know what you're up to. Well, I found out later on within 12 hours of my leaving that FBI office, the assistant director of the FBI had alerted the National Security Council, the head of the National Security Division for the Justice Department, the head of the criminal division, assistant attorney general and the attorney general about what I've just told the FBI. There was a convergence, and that was the start of a massive cover-up involving the White House, the Justice Department, the FBI, the U.S. attorney in Miami, the FBI agents in Miami, and the prosecutor in Miami. It was full-throated, full-on, shut it down. Two days later, I get a call. Come on over to the U.S. attorney's office. And I walk there with my investigator, and we sit sitting again in one of those small interview rooms that you see on TV. There's the prosecutor, Jeff Feldman, the original Jesus Garcia prosecutor and two FBI agents. And, well, Mattis, you've gone too far. Stop. Stop. I don't know what you think you're doing. You're going to see the inside of a grand jury room. That's plain English. That I was going to be prosecuted for something, obstruction of justice, witness—I go down the list of crimes that they wanted to charge me with. So at that point, we decided that the conversation was over. But I knew that things were turning very badly for me, very quickly. I had to get a lawyer. I was advised to be very, very careful, and that things were very likely happen to me legally. As a federal employee walking in the courthouse, the word was getting out that somehow I was not part of the team anymore. But Mattis keeps investigating. He still has Jack Terrell, aka
1: Colonel Flacco, the Alabama mercenary turned contra whistleblower. So last episode, we talked about Jack Terrell being forced out of Honduras at gunpoint at the Order of Oliver North. Terrell then got back to New Orleans. That's when Mattis got in touch with him, Well, around the same time that Mattis contacts Terrell, so does a faction of the intelligence community. This time, a faction working to expose the Contra operation.
5: When I got to New Orleans, I was, my phone rang. I was told the name Mr. Smith. But Mr. Smith was many voices. Mr. Smith was a composite that I was talking to that knew enough about me, knew enough about what I did. The conversation always started the same way. It is March the 5th, it's five thirty, nineteen eighty-eight. 1988 This is what I've got to say.
1: This is Jonathan Weiner, a member of the Kerry investigation.
2: He would never tell us exactly who he was working for. I'm not sure
1: he knew. And these members of the intelligence community have a proposal for Terrell.
5: They wanted me to be their conduit for leaks of information from various intelligence agencies to the press because these people also saw the scale that we know as checks and balances had gone totally out of control. They had far more knowledge than they told me of what was really going on, even though I was getting a very good taste of the illegalities that were going on, that oversight committees and Congress was saying, no, this is not happening. This faction within
1: the intelligence community, leaking information through Terrell, then gives him a plan to get attention on his story.
5: I was told how to contact the FBI, the DEA, and tell them I was going to defect to Nicaragua. And this would bring attention of law enforcement agents. When I first met with FBI agents in New Orleans, they and said, well, we have cable. Miami, it says, if you can find Jack Terrell anywhere, let us know. So there had already been radar out for me in, in the country. The next thing I know, I'm being visited by the staff of Senator John Kerry, the newspaper people, law enforcement agents.
2: Little did we know, when Colonel Flacco came to Miami in the summer of 86, there was a 24-hour surveillance team on him as he's coming to talk to me. And ultimately, they went into his hotel room and went through his trash to find out what he was saying to me. So there had been a concerted effort to shut it all down.
5: Boom, I'm in Washington, just as foretold by the group I was dealing with, which called themselves Internal Command and Control, or in Com-Con, Was put on as a consultant with a public policy group in Washington called the International Center for Development Policy.
1: So this is a left-wing think tank that focuses on foreign policy. Being associated with an institution like this gives Terrell some legal cover and a secure place to run his leak campaign.
5: And at this location, I served as a switchboard between IncomCon and the press. But I was given enough classified information or most certainly confidential information that gave me a background and an education and a blueprint to exactly how they were running the war. It's sort of a little casual talk but not much in that I was picking up the agenda that, that people within the agency that was primarily behind this, the CIA, were quite unhappy with the fact that William Casey had come to the CIA and had virtually destroyed the command structure there. And William Casey is
1: Ronald Reagan's hand-picked director of central intelligence.
5: Uh, he would just as soon come down from the seventh floor of the CIA to some poor analyst and say, do this. And if you don't, you'll wind up, you know, uh, being an analyst in Chad. So that there was a lot Extraordinary behavior by Casey and some of the people he was bringing into this agency. So they saw this as a way to get back the stability in their institution. And Casey
1: was an odd pick for CIA director, as he had been Reagan's campaign manager. And Casey's only engagement with the intelligence community had been back in World War II, when the CIA was called OSS.
4: Fellow survivors, OSS started with the vision that intelligence... Subversion, psychological warfare could be our spearhead in the invasion of Europe.
1: Okay, and the difference between OSS and CIA is important. See, OSS was specifically a wartime operation, and World War II was sort of a no holds barred war. In addition to intelligence work, they supported armed resistance movements and sabotaged critical resources. And remember retired General John Singlaub from last episode? He was the guy who was publicly raising funds for the Contras and secretly back-channeling with Oliver North. Well, back in World War II, when Singlaub worked for OSS, Bill Casey was his case officer. As CIA director, Casey is determined to bring the agency back to its days of swashbuckling World War II successes. And in Reagan, he had a president ready to support him.
4: They were ideological
1: soulmates, true cold warriors on the offensive. But many in the agency were wary. This is Tom Polgar, who retired from the CIA not long after Casey's arrival.
5: I became a little bit disenchanted because it seemed to me that Casey was living in the past and that he was trying to recreate the operational tactics which OSS had been using.
1: Now, as we've shown, the CIA hadn't had a lot of trouble pulling off some pretty extreme covert operations. But America's involvement in Central America started long before the Cold War in a series of conflicts known as the Banana Wars. Between 1898 and 1934, the United States invaded countries throughout Central America and the Caribbean, largely to protect the investments of America's fruit companies. It might sound like I'm saying this to make a political point, but this wasn't exactly a secret at the time. The CIA was formed in 1947, just a decade after the Banana Wars, and the first CIA intervention in Central America was in 1954 with a coup in Guatemala, which ousted the democratically elected and moderate President Jacob Arbenz and installed a right-wing dictatorship, prompting a civil war that lasts decades and leads to 200,000 deaths. This is CIA operative Phil Rodinger
3: i was
2: called over to the latin american branch one of my friends was over there and he said say we've got a
3: job for you and i said what are you talking about so we want you to take over the government of guatemala
1: and while this operation was done in the context of the cold war it was clear some things hadn't changed a whole lot since the banana wars
2: nobody in the government ever thought that guatemala was any threat to the united states what they were the threat to was the united fruit
3: company that's the only reason
1: This CIA coup was witnessed by a young doctor who was in Guatemala at the time. Upon seeing the ease with which the CIA toppled the government, he was inspired to conduct a similar operation of his own. He was known as Ernesto Che Guevara, and he went on to lead Castro's forces to victory in the Cuban Revolution. The ease of the Guatemala operation also gave the CIA an inflated sense of confidence when they tried to topple Guevara and Castro in their failed Bay of Pigs invasion. When the CIA wasn't knocking over regimes that the US president didn't like, it was propping up regimes he did like. And some of those regimes could be pretty brutal. But in 1975, five years before Casey was appointed as CIA director, these operations came to a boil in what became known as the Year of Intelligence. Watergate had tarnished the CIA's reputation. Then, revelations started pouring in about controversial operations conducted by both the CIA and the FBI at home and abroad. And then, in 1975, Congress began to investigate.
4: In 1975, as the war in Vietnam came to an end, Congress took its first public look at the secret government. The hearings opened the books on a string of lethal activities, from the use of electric pistols and poison pellets to mafia connections and drug experiments. And they gave us a detailed account of assassination plots against foreign leaders and the overthrowing of sovereign governments.
1: We learn about COINTELPRO, an FBI operation to monitor and surveil alleged American subversives including Martin Luther King Jr. Operation Shamrock, where telecommunication companies shared America's data with the NSA. MKULTRA, the CIA's attempt at mind control using methods that include administering LSD to unwitting subjects.
4: They went under code names such as Chaos, Cable Splicer, Garden Plot, and Leprechaun. According to the hearings, the secret government had been given a license to reach all the way to every mailbox, every college campus, every telephone, and every home. This is G. Gordon Liddy, former FBI agent and one of
1: Nixon's plumbers, who we were talking about in episode one. It was the group of mostly CIA and Miami Cubans who conducted political operations for Nixon. Yeah, you remember. In this clip, Liddy describes the kind of information he had on people that they thought were subversives.
5: And you had a card in the office where that person lived and in the office where that person worked, if it was different. And it had to be updated every 60 days. It had a photograph. It had all the vital statistics. And at a given signal, we were in a position to go out and round them up just as we rounded up Japanese nationals and German nationals in World War II.
1: After these hearings in 1975 and 76, several laws were passed limiting the ability of the FBI, CIA, and other intelligence agencies to spy on American citizens that they believed to be subversives. Furthermore, a law was passed saying the president had to be made aware of any covert actions.
3: The new law requires formal presidential approval for any covert operations, as well as timely notification of Congress.
1: And we mentioned that the CIA was started in part to create plausible deniability between the president and covert actions. Well, Now, that layer of protection is gone. This is CIA Director Colby at the
0: hearings. You've heard of the doctrine of plausible deniability. Yes, and I've rejected it uh, now, Senator. I say that uh, we cannot depend upon that
1: anymore. And now the CIA doesn't just answer to the president. Now the CIA also answers to Congress. While many in the intelligence community believe that this public airing is just what the intelligence community needs, others, like Oliver North, believe these laws made it unnecessarily hard to pull off covert operations. This is a clip of Oliver North in 1986 as he is illegally supporting the Contra War.
2: To many, particularly in our Congress, the thought of covert action is anathema. Critics of such a capability have hamstrung our intelligence services with a series of constraints on both the service and the executive that make such action almost impossible.
1: Despite North's claim, The Reagan administration seemed to have very little trouble pulling off covert
4: operations. In seven years, Ronald Reagan approved over 50 major covert operations, more than any president since John F. Kennedy. Reagan and Casey set the agenda, but it was this man's job to carry it out. In Oliver North, they had their 007.
1: During the Reagan administration, the CIA was incredibly active in Central America and the Caribbean. In El Salvador, the CIA supported a regime that killed tens of thousands of its citizens. The CIA trained death squads in Honduras. It toppled a coup in Grenada. But for Reagan and Casey, this wasn't enough. And the two decided to take things even further. Combining elements of Singlaub's Western goals and Nixon's plumber's operation, they created a program they called The Enterprise. Their own private, off-the-books CIA. Behind the back of Congress, hidden from any form of oversight. A private company that, among other things, can run the Contra war. This is how Oliver North describes the enterprise in his testimony.
2: The director was interested in the ability to go to an existing, as he put it, off-the-shelf, self-sustaining, standalone, self-financing entity, independent of appropriated monies and capable of conducting activities similar to the ones that we had conducted here. There were other countries that were suggested that might be the the beneficiaries of that kind of support, other activities.
3: You understood the CIA is funded by the United States government, correct? That is correct. You understood that the United States government put certain limitations on what the CIA could do, correct? That is correct. And I ask you today, are you not shocked that the Director of Central Intelligence is proposing to you the creation of a organization to do these kinds of things outside of his own organization? Counsel, I can tell you I'm not shocked.
1: And so Terrell claims a faction within the CIA concerned with what they saw as Casey's unhinged lawbreaking and obstruction of Congress are using Terrell to conduct a leak operation. This might sound kind of illegal and, well, It is, but this is also how many leaking operations go like appropriately we think of watergate as a victory for journalism but most of that information came out because of a leak campaign conducted by mark felt the number two guy at the fbi who would go down in history as deep throat so the kind of campaign that Flacco is involved in isn't exactly unusual still it does bring a strange irony in that he is also working with a rogue faction of the intelligence community to investigate a rogue faction of the intelligence community.
2: I would have had no way of knowing who's a rogue CIA agent versus a legitimate one, given all I saw were the ones operating in the middle of a secret, illegal war.
5: As Jack Blum, the attorney for the Kerry Committee, said the problem with Jack Terrell is that his information is just too good. People said, oh, my God, we've got a CIA agent working for us.
1: But even armed with this information, Terrell and the Kerry investigation have a hard time finding
5: any traction. The press was very resistant to somebody who came from the Contra Theater into Washington and was accusing people of
2: things that they said you cannot possibly prove.
1: And Mattis feels like his investigation has
2: stalled out. So two journalists in Costa Rica... Martha Honey and Tony Avagon, had written a report published in Costa Rica, not widely circulated, that had tied the bombing of Aidan Pastora, the head of the Southern Front Contras, who had had a falling out with the CIA, linking it to John Hull, the rancher. So it's probably a good
1: time to mention that there are factions in the Contras. It's not just one army. And while these factions are all opposed to the Sandinista government in Nicaragua, that's about all they have in common. For example, Adolfo Calero, the main Contra leader we've talked about who was the head of the FDN, before the war, he was a right-wing businessman aligned with the American government. Then there's Eden Pastor, who ran a competing faction of the Contras. He had been a left-wing guerrilla fighter who had a falling out with the Sandinistas after the revolution and now has switched sides. So, among the different Contra groups, there are massive personal and ideological power struggles and infighting. But now, the CIA-connected rancher John Hull has sued two journalists for implying he was involved in an assassination attempt on Eden
2: Pastor, the Contra leader who was feuding with Calero. So, he had gotten outraged and sued them. Well, a lawsuit for defamation in Costa Rica has criminal implications, And their trial was scheduled for late spring of 1986. So they asked me if I would be a witness in their trial, in their defense. So I agreed to be a witness. And so I dutifully took off time from work, two days, and flew to Costa Rica to be a witness. I met with them and they said, well, we're going to have the trial the next day, that one of their witnesses, Steve Card, one of the mercenaries had disappeared. I was like, oh, that doesn't bode well. I go to court and armored cars in front of the courthouse, never a good sign. So I go in and I realize that the courthouse is packed, mostly with the journalists, a drab, low courthouse and I'm ushered into the witness room, and I'm sitting in a tiny little room the size of a large jail cell. I was sitting like three feet from John Hull and his attorneys, and my knees were almost hitting their table. He actually had CIA security detail for years. It's like, God, that's a nice perk. There's Aiden Pastora and two... Mercenaries who were supporters of John Hull. So they were all wedged in. And there's Colonel Flacco. And I testified about everything I knew. And we adjourn for lunch. So we're in this middle of this crowded hallway. And out of the blue, John Hull and his team elbows his way up to me and says, Will Mattis. You really said a lot, and I'm not going to forget it. And you're not going to forget it. And he just turned his back to me and walked away. We go back into court to watch the next witness testify, and I'm sitting in the back of this courtroom, wedged in. And I see people at the front passing a note all the way back through the audience, and I open this little scrap of paper John, you're in danger. Hull had the embassy, get your passport number, you're not leaving the country. I had seen it passed from Leslie Coburn, who is a producer for CBS News, who years later told me why she was able to write the note is because John Hull was so friggin' arrogant and powerful that right in front of a producer for CBS News could say, to his security detail. Call the embassy. Get his passport number. He is never leaving Costa Rica. He's mine. So I'm sitting there and I'm absorbing what I'm reading. There was like the implications were from bad to really bad. All of the bad scenarios. It killed, kidnapped, captured, disappeared, all, all of it. But I'm sitting in a courtroom, and the first thing is I got to figure out how to discreetly, sorry, excuse myself without anyone noticing. Immediately, I'm leaving the courtroom. Two of the security detail and this, who was the interpreter for John? Hull. It's again, someone from Washington. Now, why does he need an interpreter? He's fluent in Spanish, but he comes up to me, and he says, "John." that was so interesting. I go, you know, what's the game plan? And he goes, well, I'd like to meet with you. Could I meet with you after the trial today to come over to your hotel? And the brain goes, or my hotel and whack me in my room. So I say, sure. Why don't you come over for a beer at five o'clock? I'm at the Holiday Inn Imperial. I was not staying there, but he goes, Good, I'll meet you there. That minute, I left caught to camp to my real hotel, picked up my bag, went to another hotel, checked in for a room. I just wanted to give them two to three places to check until they found me. I was just buying time. That was the best I could do. There's no counter-kidnapping playbook you get in law school.
1: This is David Tucker, Mattis' friend and fellow public defender.
0: He called me from Costa Rica, and uh, I said, just get the hell off. Just come home. You leave. I mean, it, was like, it wasn't like a, oh, let's debate. What does this do? this? what you do. It was like, get the hell out of there. Are you crazy? They're going to kill you. This is the CIA.
2: So I went to the airport, and I sat there and had a nervous breakdown. You know, first, they opened The office, I walk up and give me a ticket to Miami, bought a second ticket to Miami, and got on the first flight out of San Jose, Costa Rica. And as soon as I hit the ground in Miami, I was like, Oh my God. I think I was just in a kidnapping. I and thinking about it in retrospect was terrifying. I mean customers said, What were you doing in Costa Rica? And I said, Escaping. I told the senator's staff, and they're like, oh, okay, John, that's not good. That's not good. Up. Now, the good news was the journalists won, hands down. And I think that further enraged John Hull, take my bags, go to work, and, you know, I'd only been out for a day, and I walk in, I get it in and I go, man, it's come to my office. The boss wants to see me. He goes, I just got a call from Leon Kendler, the U.S. attorney. You were in Costa Rica. I don't know what you were doing, but he's really upset with you. I'm like, boss, I just escaped a freaking kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica, led by John Hull and his friends. And I don't care what they told you, but they can go blank themselves. Somehow John Hull, because he failed to kidnap me, has a direct line to the U.S. attorney, the top prosecutor in all of South Florida, who has nothing better to do with his time He has the time to take a call from a thug CIA guy in Costa Rica. The U.S. attorney had put a bullseye on me. The U.S. attorney had threatened my boss. And in a courthouse community of a couple hundred people, I was somehow a problem for everyone. And I thought, you know, the FBI can act like they didn't hear it, but I'm going to be staying in front of a federal judge, and I'm going to lay out... Under oath, exactly everything that Garcia had witnessed had in fact happened. Mysteriously, the sentencing of Jesus Garcia was put off into the ethers. I mean, it just, hi, let's just postpone it. Well, in federal court, you got to have some good reasons to do everything and you got to lay it out. Government didn't. I and mean, just laid it out that they didn't want to sentence it. The main Justice Department did not want to hear from me or Jesus Garcia. So Mattis has been placing all his hopes on being
1: able to present this evidence at Jesus's sentencing to mitigate Jesus's jail time by showing he was a cooperating witness. He's also hoping to help the Kerry investigation by getting the evidence on the record in front of a federal judge. But now... With the sentencing delayed indefinitely without a stated reason, Mattis is left with few options moving forward.
2: I was sort of stuck. I couldn't undo what I had learned, and I still had Jesus Garcia rotting in jail. Would I love to have turned the clock back and just be a regular lawyer? Yeah. I didn't become a lawyer to get myself kidnapped. I didn't become a lawyer to get threatened or to be put in jail or none of that. I mean, there was no way I could Dig myself out. So it was a dark, dark spring. And then one day I'm in the prison in early summer, and this Colombian drug lord saunters across the visiting room, and the masses moved. He was incredibly well dressed, he had a tailored jumpsuit, and his hair was beautiful. He had a stylist, he was well taken care of in a prison. And he walks right up to me while Garcia is standing there. He says, hi, my name is Jorge Morales. I'm the world powerboat champion. You know, I know all of the same people you know, and all of the people you are investigating, sir, have betrayed me. And he reels down the names, starting with John Hull, all of them. He goes, they're all crooked, they're a corrupt, And they left me here, and you're going to help me. And that's when I said, no, I'm not. You're a rich Colombian drug lord. I can't work for you. You're not poor enough. And he said, you will.
0: This has been Jack Bryan. And I'm John Cryer. And this has been Lawyers, Guns, and Money. Please join us next week as we start getting into how to finance a war once your funding's been
4: cut. I always took George for his word. I mean, many times I was amazed at some of the things that he said would uh, take place that actually took place. How do you know the CIA was aware of these drug planes entering the States? They actually saw the transaction. They saw the drug transaction? Yes.
1: Well, we will see you next week or listen to next week's episode ad-free now at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. And And you'll hear more about Mattis' relationship with the mercenaries and about the surreal meeting place of the forces in Miami. That is lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. Subscribe now.
3: Lawyers Guns and Money is a discount sushi and bunker crew media production in association with MSW Media. It was produced by John Cryer and Jack Bryan. It was written and edited by Jack Bryan. Special thanks to Dennis Bernstein for allowing us to use his interview with Jack Terrell. Special thanks also to Ian Masters for allowing us to use his interview with Jack Blum. Copyright 2023. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you again on the next episode of Lawyers, Guns, and Money. Enjoy.